It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson's here, and we have 10 questions and answers. We'll also talk about, yes, yet another flaw in Java. Oracle says, eh, we're not going to fix that till next year. Steve has the details next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. It's time for Security Now with Steve Gibson. This is episode 375, recorded October 24th, 2012. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 153. Security Now is brought to you by GoToAssist from Citrix. Take control of your IT world from one simple cloud-based platform. Provide live or unattended support to all your users anywhere. Sign up for your 30-day free trial today at GoToAssist.com. Use the promo code SECURITY. And by Ford, featuring available sync. Now you can control your media player with simple voice commands. Enjoy your drive while you easily search and listen to your favorite songs. Check it out on the 2012 Ford Focus or at Ford.com slash technology. And by Audible.com. To download the free audiobook of your choice, visit audiblepodcast.com slash security now. And don't forget to get a copy of Brandon Sanderson's Legion free at audible.com slash Sanderson. It's time for Security Now, the show for adepts, for geeks who know their stuff or want to be adepts. Our explainer-in-chief is here, Steve Gibson. I, I say that, Steve, because, hello. First of hey. all, hey, <laughs> hey, it's great to be with you again, as always, my friend. I, I say that because I was talking to Shannon Morse, who is one of our newest hires uh, here. Uh, she is going to be a producer and host on Before You Buy. People oh. know her from Hack 5. And she and Hack 5 host Darren Kitchen are doing a new show on the uh, a YouTube channel called Tech Feed, which is uh, all about tech. And they're doing a security show. And oh. I thought, uh-oh, oh uh-oh. But then Shannon explained it's security for real people. I thought, oh, good, because we don't do <laughs> security for real people. We don't do anything nice and easy. No, we do everything nice and nerdy. And uh, this show is for people who really want to understand deeply. And I think that's not my mom or my grandma or my uncle or my son. It's people who are really nerdy. And uh, right, Steve. I mean, I don't think that's unfair to characterize this. We try no, to make it I have accessible. No problem but... with, I have no problem with that. I think that what's valuable is that there is currently nowhere else to get what we offer. Exactly. We got a lot of great feedback, for example, from last week's serious propeller winding episode on how elliptic curve crypto works. I mean, like, really, a lot of tweets and, and neat feedback from people who are saying, hey, I actually got that. And some people um, were using it to put themselves to sleep. But mostly, it was, uh, it was people who enjoyed having the, yeah. the, the stuff. 
So oh, we, yeah. so that's really the point. I mean, I and I think it's actually the point of Twit is I don't want to do dumbed down content. I want to do content for people who really want to know the actual details uh, behind the stuff, you know. And uh, and and I, well, I think that's we've done all right by that. Well, and that's what interests both of us. Yeah, I mean, it's well, that's really mostly it's why. Driven, it's driven by who we are. Yeah, and it's like okay, I can't produce endlessly a a show about security for. You Dummies. know, mere mortals. Mere mortals? Who are they? <laughs> Who be they? Oh, what fools these mortals be. Ephemeral mere mortal. <laughs> We're not really sure that person exists. But, you know, I think that if you listen to the show, you, you know, there's there's plenty of detail here. You make it as easy as possible with your transcriptions uh, so for people to go back and look at, study, and chew. And I think it, it, this is a college-level course is what this is. And and high school, somebody needs to do that, and somebody needs to do elementary school, and that's fine. Um, by the way, this is a Q&A episode, so that's the other option, is if you don't understand something, literally every other episode, uh, you get to ask Steve questions, and he could further explain. And I think that's really, well, really and great. Well, and as a reminder for people who are joining us recently, there I am sort of assuming that our listeners have been with us for the last seven and a half years. Um, you know, we're at episode 375, and 374 previous episodes are, are all available online for, for people to get. And so there, there is some assumption. I mean, I don't rely heavily on content we've covered. Um, and I'll, awful, I'll often say, I'll, I'll mention it. Okay, now, you know, we indeed, we've already talked about public key crypto and, you know, how it's based on uh, typically on factoring in an episode devoted to that. So we're not going to go over the whole thing again. And anyway, the point is there is some assumption that, people have been following along and and for those who haven't been or because they're just joining us recently uh that is all available online at both of our websites yes at uh, grc.com steve's home and twit.tv our home i not say my your home. domain our home our before we uh, get going with the q a and i know you got a lot of uh security news to report yep, got as some well. Some interesting stuff have has transpired in the last week since we uh last talked to it's our, late our last listeners. Week. So it's good. I mean, something happened yeah. this week. Yeah. Lots. <laughs> but first though, let me talk to you about uh, talk to the IT professionals in the audience. The, and that this is exactly why uh, go to assist from Citrix advertises with the show because they know the people who are listening to this show are seriously interested in technology and security. And many of you are in IT. Maybe you're an individual provider. You work for a company. Maybe you'd like to uh, step up and become a managed services provider. This is the tool you need, the ultimate tool for anybody in support. It's called Go to Assist. Now, I know you're thinking, oh, I know that, Leo. I know about that. That's a great program. That's the that's that remote access program. That lets uh, me handle up to eight sessions at once. I can do unattended or attended support um, remotely from a Mac or a PC to a Mac. Or, oh, yeah, I know that one. Oh, that's the one that lets me support people from an iPad or an iPhone. Yeah, yeah, I know. No, you don't know all about it because go to assist. This is uh, Citrix kind of way. This is their MO. It, it's getting better all the time. And, yes, it's the number one industry leader in remote support, but now they've added a new product. They actually acquired a monitoring solution that really adds to what you can do with GoToAssist. 
So now there's really three parts to go to assist. There's the remote support we talked about, but hand in hand with that goes a service desk so you can manage, track, and resolve issues. And there are new monitoring, which lets you be proactive about problems before they occur. What you'll do with GoToAssist, by the way, this is all together in one package, which is fantastic. What you'll do with GoToAssist is you'll install the crawler on your network, your client's network, your network, depending on which network you're supporting. And it will then go out and, and get a list of everything on the network, hardware and software, everything. You can set up dashboards. They have some pre-built uh, little plugins, or you can customize them. Things like, you know, how, how's the server performing? What's the CPU load? But also things like how much room is left on the hard drive or how much toner is left in the cartridge, everything. You could have alerts via instant message, SMS, or email. It will text you. Go to Assist will text you saying, quickly, the, the server's down. Or, hey, you know, we're really below 80% performance on the network. Maybe you want to check that LAN. You can then remote in and fix it from your iPhone, your iPad, your Android device. It is fantastic. For you as an individual or for a whole team, this is support done right. I want you to try it free. All the features, the monitoring, the, the ticket system, and the uh, remote access by just going to the website. Go to assist.com and use the promo code SECURITY. Go to assist.com, promo code SECURITY. 30 days free. Do sign up for all three tools so you can try them all. The service desk is the newest. I haven't even played with this one yet. It's really amazing. This is what I love about uh, Citrix. They just add and add and add and make it better and better and better just constantly. Go to assist.com. Use the offer code security. All right, Steve Gibson, security news. So, okay, we're now on, you've heard of Suicide Watch, no. right? Well, yeah, for, on, for people who are suicidal, yeah. Yeah, well, Oracle is. Oh, dear. Uh, oh, no. We're on, we're on Oracle Exploit Watch, or maybe it's Java Exploit Watch. Oh, Java, I believe, yeah. Yeah, um, we've spoken about uh, the the Polish security researcher Adam Gaudiak before, uh, whose <laughs> company like is Security. <laughs> the Polish security researcher. I, I, I there's a joke in there. No, I'm not gonna do. no, no, no. no. Yeah, okay. serious. Seriously, he's a good guy. Yeah, with uh, security explorations, um, he reported to Oracle, and we have discussed this already uh, a couple weeks ago, he reported discovering a very bad zero-day vulnerability that affects all versions of Java, versions 5, version 6, version 7. He provided them with demonstration, exploit, and an explanation of the problem, and they've essentially blown him off. Oh, come uh, on. No, I'm not kidding. We're going to have to get a little new musical sounder. It's the Java <laughs> exploit of the week, 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 week. He, they blew him that. off? Yes. They um, they said, well, um, we, it, we were unable to get this into the most recent update. Remember, we just had a massive Java update, 109 different problems fixed in their October um refresh. Well, now they're saying they're going to fix this in February of 2013. 
uh, Kaspersky wrote uh, in their threat post blog, they said the vulnerability and exploit were announced in late September. Gaudi X exploit successfully beat a fully patched Windows 7 computer running Firefox 15.0.1, Chrome 21, Internet Explorer 9, Opera 12, and Safari 5.1.7. The exploit relies on a user landing on a site hosting the exploit. An attacker would use a malicious Java applet or banner ad to drop the malware and ultimately take over full control of, a, of the user's been-compromised machine. So this is, this is, you know, as bad as a Java exploit gets. So being a little bit annoyed, Adam has now explained that he's fixed the problem, which took him, he says, under 30 minutes. It actually took him 26 minutes to fix the known glaring Java zero-day vulnerability. And what what Oracle is saying is that, oh, uh, they're already in the works testing the February update against all of their different platforms, and it's too late to put this into the site, the release cycle, which is, what, four months away. And so he says... Uh, Adam wrote, code logic is not changed at all. Minor changes are applied to the code. None of them influence what could be described as an externally visible scope affecting third-party applications. So all indications are that this is pure bureaucratic mumbo-jumbo, to be polite, from Oracle. So the question is, this is not in the wild yet. This is privately disclosed. Adam and his group at Security Explorations know what this is. Um, it's been made public. We know that there is this problem. And so now the question is, does, does Oracle find themselves more or less deliberately compromising users' machines through their reticence to fix this now or, or to add this to this you know, to their, you know, to, to, to respond quickly. So, but they, but they also have other things they're patching. I mean, it's not like, <laughs> I mean, I they, <laughs> okay. Yeah. So <laughs> they're saying they're holding to their February 2013 oh, release. Oh. So we are 2013, February 2013. Oh. That's the next time they're going to update just don't Java. Use Java. Don't be foolish. Just stop exactly that. That is, this is, Across all browsers, all platforms, Crazy. all versions of Java, this is bad. And this is a remote of, you know, I mean, this is as bad as it gets. A critical vulnerability that allows anyone who discovers it to take over your machine. So, God. You know, now, now, it has to come in through the browser or you have to run a Java program directly on your computer, right? Nope. Yeah, this is uh, Kaspersky describing it said this, the exploit relies on a user landing on a site hosting the exploit. Well, well that, but that's what I mean. It comes in through your browser. Your browser Correct. has to execute Java. Presumably, they could manage an exploit by writing a program with code like that in it that you would download and run. Separately. Yeah, but I mean, I mean for example, th this could be injected in an ad. Right. So you could have a banner ad right. served up maliciously right. somewhere. 
No, I mean, this is the way people are now getting their machines primarily infected is visiting websites that are taking advantage. I mean, all, all of the, all of, e even the fiction that we're reading, you know, Mark Rasinovich's uh, uh, approaches to how people get compromised is this, because this is how it happens now. And so here's Oracle knowing that there's a problem and saying, eh, you know, it's not public. So we're going to wait till February of 2013. Or until it Does becomes public, which it presumably will. Thus, you know, well, I mean, when we just had this huge disaster with right. the Macs all being all being compromised, right. you know, hundreds of thousands of Macintosh machines. So it's like, uh, OK, so we are thus on Oracle Exploit Watch. We'll see what happens. <laughs> Jeez. Now, many people tweeted and thank you, everybody who tweeted um, a an annoying an, an, an annoying announcement, uh, and you probably saw this, Leo. It, 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 it the the headline was it was covered in many different locations, claiming a tenfold bandwidth improvement through using some algebra, and, and I mean, like a, a typical headline was algebra creates tenfold bandwidth improvement. <laughs> what? <laughs> And it's like, yeah, okay, so, what? so here's the deal. Uh, it's, com that's, it's completely bogus. Um, researchers at MIT, the University of Porto in Portugal, Harvard, Caltech, and the Technical University of Munich have, have come up with a solution which can improve the internet using experience of a class of users. So uh, quoting from, I think this might have been, uh, it wasn't wired as maybe tech world. Um, anyway, all of the stories pretty much use the same boilerplate from the press release that the, co that the, that the group that are commercializing this put out. It says, the technology transforms the way packets of data are sent. Instead of sending packets, it sends algebraic equations that Ooh. describe series of packets. So if a packet goes missing, instead of asking the network to resend it, the receiving device can solve for the missing one itself. Since the equations involved are simple and linear, the processing load on a phone router or base station is negligible so it's like okay well we listeners to this podcast have enough understanding of of technology to probably get or guess what's going on first of all there's no way that you get a tenfold bandwidth improvement and in their in the press release they they talk about how they were demonstrating this by playing a YouTube video uh, on a train somewhere and theirs was just playing smoothly oh, with, without problems while other people around them were having glitchy, stoppy, you know, unworkable uh, experiences. So, and I don't mean to downplay what they've done. This is nice, but this is not... 
a tenfold bandwidth improvement thanks to some algebra. Um, what they've done is they've added error correction code. It's like, it's like RAID for Wi-Fi. And, and something like this has been done recently. I want to say that the Steam distribution system does this also because I know that Mark Thompson and I a couple of years ago he was implementing his own content distribution technology for for a group that he was working with and so we were talking about this and 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 he was looking into the code and and so forth and you know I've often talked about error correction in the context of course of of hard drives and and so it's it's clear that that what they're doing is they are they're at, they're actually adding some overhead to each packet sent such that if some are missing they using typical error correction technology which is not rocket science by any means they can fill in the missing data so i mean it's it's cool and it's clever but it certainly doesn't get you a tenfold bandwidth improvement. And they talk about how if a packet were lost, what you would normally have to do is ask for it again. You'd have to, you know, send back, oops, we don't have this packet, get it again. Now, you know, the streaming protocols already get around doing that. You, it, it, They'll just skip the packet. You and I are, are talking back and forth on a streaming protocol designed to be tolerant of lost packets so so anyway so i just wanted to respond to the many people who tweeted saying hey can you tell us about this you know first of all calm down it's not a tenfold bandwidth improvement uh, that just isn't available it is in fact if you had perfect packet delivery it would be a base a slight bandwidth reduction yet in the presence of a certain level of lost packets, then that that extra overhead ends up benefiting you if you if you are in a situation where your particular use of the internet is intolerant of a round trip delay for for dealing with a lost packet because that they uh, the overhead you've added to every single packet allows you to to compute the contents of lost packets. So anyway, there's a company, code-on.org, code-on.org, which is the is the uh, the licensing LLC that's been set up among these parties. It's an MIT Caltech startup called Code On Technologies, where you know they're making this available, and I think it's a good thing. I maybe it'll catch on. Yeah, uh, for certain uses, but uh, a tenfold bandwidth improvement? Uh, no, um, I mean the only way you, you, you'd be hard pressed actually to make the system do that. If you had really high packet loss, then see at some point even this system won't help you. And I mean, I guess it could be dynamically adaptive so that as your packet loss goes up, it starts putting more redundancy into the packets in, in order to increase the amount of correction that it's, you know, like to increase its tolerance for 
for packet loss. It doesn't, it just, you know, I mean, these problems have been solved all over the place in all kinds of ways. Um, the, the, the dynamics are different here than, for example, on a hard disk drive, because here you, you do have the ability to ask for data again if you are unable to correct it. On a hard disk drive, once the data has been written, then you lose that data from the, the right buffer and you now are, are required to recover it and correct it when you want, are trying to read it later. So, you know, things are a little bit different than in, in, in a real-time data flow. But anyway, it's, it's an interesting thing. But it would be, be interesting to see if you could actually demonstrate a tenfold bandwidth improvement. It would have to be in an extremely lossy environment where where you were performing heavy replacement of lost packets. I don't even know. It, that, that to me, that, that just <laughs> seems like you're really stretching it. Yeah. Um, another little piece of interesting news uh, that a number of our uh, listeners picked up on and, and made sure I knew about, uh, a mathematician, Zach Harris, um, received a spoofed email from Google. Mm-mm. That is, it looked like, an authentic piece of email from Google from some sort of a headhunter is like, you know, like offering him a job. And he wasn't interested in the job, but he was interested in the fact that this was clearly spam, but it was, it should have been impossible, excuse me, to spoof it because it was protected with Google's DKIM the domain keys identified mail. We've talked about the technology of DKIM before. The idea is that the the mail is signed with Google's private key and DNS is used for publishing their public key. So this is a, a very nice, simple, sort of straightforward demonstration, application of of the use of public key crypto. That is, you use DNS to, to publish a, the public signing key, which is used to verify the signature done with the private key. The problem is, when Zach, who's as a mathematician, re- took a look at the email headers, he realized that it was a 512-bit public key. And we all know that's not enough anymore. And Zach said, he was quoted in an article said, saying, I like factoring. <laughs> so so he, he factored from the email um, the, the, the crypto that Google was using because he was able to look up using DNS, look up their public key. He cracked it. And then he spoofed his own email back to Google, um, and it was like between uh, uh, Bryn and um, and another and was it is it, is it Serge Sergey Ser- 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 Sergey right. and uh, Larry Page and Sergey Bryn he faked right. and he pretended it was him. <laughs> he faked might an as email well go to the top <laughs> from one of them to the other in both directions. An email that was clearly that got their spoofed. attention. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And what happened was the next day, 
Google's DKIM <laughs> went to 2048 bits. Wow. So <laughs> what was the email? That, Yo ho ho, dude. <laughs> so so then he looks around and it turns out that the same weak DKIM keys are currently in use by PayPal, Yahoo, Amazon, eBay, Apple, Dell, LinkedIn, Twitter, SBC Global, oh US Bank, HP, Match.com, and HSBC. So, so what this is, and again, this was the headlines were ridiculous. They, you know, the headlines were massive internet security vulnerability. It's okay, no, no, this is you know for spoofing email, and maybe people thought, well. Uh, we'll use a 512-bit key because who's going to bother factoring that? So just to spoof it's not a It's not a high-value target. No. Yeah. Although anyway, it is. So I mean, it's not insignificant either. Right? The DKIM standard calls for a 1024-bit minimum key. Oh, interesting. And that makes sense because, I mean, 1024 bits is fine today. We already know that 512 isn't. 768 which is splitting the difference between 512 and 1024, eh, it hasn't been hacked yet. There's been no, I mean, that that's like where the contests are. The factoring contests are sitting at, at Trinal tr looking for um, factoring a 768-bit key. 512, as we've already seen and as Zach reproved, is no longer strong enough. We need 1024 bits. So I imagine everybody will pretty quickly um, strengthen their anti-spoofing public key crypto to 1024 bits. You know, it must be, again, remember, these are relatively expensive operations. Public key crypto using, using RSA style is expensive. This is another reason why switching to ECC, elliptic curve crypto, for this sort of application would make sense because mail is being processed a lot, obviously, the huge amounts of mail going back and forth. And this requires a relatively, an, a relatively expensive crypto process um, in order to process email headers. So that's probably why they were sort of hoping they could get away with a, with a shorter 512-bit key because it would be lower processing overhead. Doesn't look like that's going to be possible any longer. Interesting. Because we've got lots of people who like factoring. Yeah. And know how to do it. And then lastly, uh, I wanted to point out the, a story that uh, has been out for the last few days uh, about a surprising compromise at Barnes & Noble. Um, 63 stores spread all over the country. California, Connecticut, Florida, Illinois, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, and Rhode Island were all compromised having somehow the pin pads on the, on the checkout registers were compromised. And we've talked about pin pad compromises in the past where somebody would maliciously sneak a little radio into the design of the pad. Um, this surprised people. This is 63 stores, like, geographically spread. Um, when Barnes & Noble informed the FBI, the FBI asked Barnes & Noble not to go public with the information because it wasn't clear whether this was an inside job, whether this was, you know, organized crime, what was going on. Um, and that the, the, the um, 
the barrier of secrecy has since been lifted on this so that Barnes & Noble was able to inform um, the world. And the takeaway is if you are a listener and or know somebody who has used the pin pads at Barnes & Noble stores in California, Connecticut, Florida, Illinois, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, or Rhode Island, then you should consider seriously, and this is the advice from the FBI and Barnes & Noble, change your PIN because um, many customers of Barnes & Noble during a period of time, apparently around the, through, through the summer, were subject to, and I mean, this has been exploited. This was found because people were getting their their um, debit cards, ATM cards were compromised and tr fraudulent charges were showing up wow. on them. And it, they've tracked down the common, the common factor among all these people were they had been at Barnes and Noble, and so, so this so this, they, they, was this was a hardware hack. They were able to get some hardware. Well, it's not, and then there's still not full information available. I tried to dig down, and they're now saying this is this has happened, but it's not clear whether it's hardware or software. It would be. I mean, I I just don't know. Huh. But they are saying, you know, it is the pin pad. The stories show a picture of one as if it's that physical thing. So it could, but it could be, for example, pin pad firmware, which is in the gray zone. Is that hardware or is right, that software? Right. Well, it's firmware. Right. So it's, it's specifically the word means it's somewhere between soft and hard. It's firm. Yeah, it's firm. So <clears throat> last week I mentioned Michael McCullum's newest novel, which I had just finished reading. And as a consequence, we were able to have our regularly scheduled podcast on elliptic curve crypto. I, I, <laughs> I read right up to the finish line Tuesday night. And uh, uh, it is now published. Okay. Uh, in order to tweet about it, as I did yesterday, um, I, I wrote a review uh, on Amazon, I wrote I, the title of my review was "A Great Adventure," which unfolds between continents rather than between stars. I said I'm a huge fan of Michael McCollum's always terrific space operas. They rank among my most favorite sci-fi, which I recommend routinely and without hesitation. They're so much fun that I've read most of them more than once. And if you haven't yet discovered his Gibraltar and Antares trilogies, don't stop shopping after you have grabbed this latest work, Euclid's Wall. In Euclid's Wall, Michael brings us down to Earth or back to Earth or stuck on Earth after an innocent mistake made by a pair of PhDs in the near future in 2087. You know, much, those PhDs again, I tell you. <laughs> pretty much ends the world as we know it. Whoops. Thus the sailing ship on the book's cover. 100 years post-catastrophe as humanity struggles to recreate and rebuild pieces of what has been lost. Lost was the technology required to fly, along with pretty much everything else we take for granted these days. The whole idea is really quite thought-provoking and more than a little chilling. Into this hauntingly plausible future, Michael introduces relatable and engaging characters, then weaves the sort of the sort of clever plot puzzle I've always enjoyed about his novels. 
Though I finished the book several weeks ago, it has remained with me a bit haunting, like a recent vivid dream. If you have an imagination that's usually satisfied by phasers and photon torpedoes, though you won't find those here, I believe you'll enjoy this voyage on Michael's high seas every bit as much as I did. I gave, I rated this book five stars because I think it deserves every one of them. I bet you think so too. So for anyone who has liked, who has read Gibraltar or Antares or all of the other things that Michael does, he of course is at sci-fi-az.com and he's got his books. He, he publishes themself. He bought all of the equipment a long time ago to, to print and bind soft cover novels um, just because he wanted to be vertically integrated. Uh, but also it's available at Amazon on the Kindle store. So it's a, it's a really fun book. And while I was going through the mailbag for today's Q&A, I ran across just it was a subject line that, that I said, huh, what? Uh, it was uh, Honor Harrington one year later. Chris Schwanenkamp in Columbus, Ohio wrote, he said, in episode 318 on 9-15-2011, you mentioned the Honor Harrington series, and based on your enthusiastic endorsement, I started, he says in quote, reading it, unquote. I actually listen to the audiobooks in the car to and from work. I can't thank you enough, and the others who mentioned it to you as well, for bringing this series to my attention. It was my very first sci-fi series. And it was simply incredible. Once I started reading, I didn't look back. I dropped security now like a bad habit. (laughs) I read all 13 books, then broke off and went through almost all the short stories, then back to reread on Basilisk Station again. But my favorite book by far was Echoes of Honor. Book number 14, Shadow of Freedom, can't get here soon enough. I've now started to catch up on all the Security Now episodes I missed. But I've got to be honest. You and Leo are a bit of a letdown compared to the Honor Harrington series. Still, I admit, I've missed you guys. So I'm glad to have you back. This series was life-changing for me. And I'm sure I'll be reading and rereading these books the rest of my life. For that, I can't thank you enough. Now, with regard to security now, let's be about it, which actually is a, it's one of Honor's favorite phrases. So <laughs> it's very much like Picard's Make It So. What is it one. again? Uh, let's be about it. Let's be about it. It's why when, when she's, <laughs> yes. generally the way she ends her meetings, right. she'll, she'll, you know. Let's be about it. Be, Make it so is it. a little more dramatic than let's be about <laughs> it, but okay. I, exactly. I, make it so is taken and. And uh, I got, I've been flooded with really neat health-related low-carb feedback from our listeners who I asked um, to send me their, their results and experiences of any sort. And so we will verify that the calendar is free this coming Sunday, October 28th, 2 p.m. Pacific time, in which case we will, if it is free, record Number episode number three of Over the Sugar Hill, essentially looking at six months later what our listeners have discovered and what you and I have discovered. 
Uh, now, Dr. Wants- Mom fortunately still has some painkillers left over, so... <laughs> She can medicate herself. She can pre-medicate, giving her a good warning here. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, well, I, I, I don't yeah, – Chad's not here yet, but I don't anticipate any difficulty doing that this Sunday. So plan on okay, it. Okay, so so anyone who wants to listen live, that's we're we're targeting at this coming Sunday, October 28th, uh, 2 p.m. Pacific time. We'll, it'll, of course, be a Twit special, so you'll be able to grab the podcast yes. anytime after that. Yes. Um, as we have the other things. And um, I just did want to mention briefly, since I'm an iPad lover, that yesterday was the big keynote and introduction of the, I mean, anticlimactic iPad mini announcement, as well as a refresh of a number of Apple's other things. And uh, I think the thing that I like most about the mini, Leo, is that they managed to get very slim margins on two sides where where they don't have the camera or the home button on the you know holding it in in portrait mode as opposed to landscape orientation in portrait mode it would be the left and right edges and and so that that gives it an overall sort of svelte feeling which i like and it was a 9.7 diagonal measure which is easy to remember because the regular size pad is I'm sorry, 7.9, because the regular pad is 9.7. Oh, I didn't even Uh, think of that. It's flip-flopped. Yeah, Yeah. 7.9 and 9.7. And and it looks like a nice device. Um, I guess the criticism has been that it's on the pricey side, and it'll be interesting to see how the market judges that, because we do have... You know, like things like the Nexus Seven, which is at one ninety nine, is just a is a very nice, you know, obviously non Apple solution. And as I was saying to you before we began recording, the one thing that chafes a bit is that Apple still bumps the price by a hundred dollars as you increase memory size from sixteen gig to thirty two to sixty four, because you know. EEROM, just, you know, this non-volatile memory just doesn't cost that much. And for them to gouge us um, $100 per step does seem much. And, for example, other companies, you know, high-volume producers like Amazon have a much lower price increment as you increase the amount of of, of non-volatile memory on their devices. Well, and Google has an announcement on Monday in which I think they're going to update the Nexus 7. In fact, ah. I think, yeah, I think they're doing a, I think the rumor is they're going to do a Nexus 10 that will be higher DPI than the iPad 3 or 4. Uh. So, hold on. I don't think the, I mean, 70 bucks more. You Remember, you're quoting $200 for an 8 gigabyte Nexus 7. It's 250 for a 16 gig. So, compare 250 uh, to 329. Okay. And yeah. it's, it's, that's not that's seventy bucks premium for access to the Apple iOS store and, and all right. of that. I don't. I think that that is about as good a price as one would expect from Apple. Yep. When you put it that way, I think you're right. Yeah. I. By the way, you don't have to order one. I, of course, will order. They, the orders start uh, Friday at midnight. Thursday, Friday at midnight, and uh, uh-huh. then they'll arrive the following week. And of course, uh, we order one because we have to. So I'll I'll be getting the Wi-Fi one. Yeah, I think what I'll probably do, I won't own one until I make the mistake of walking into an Apple store. <laughs> well, that's why I want to hold it because, you know, there are some people who have said, and of course, I didn't go to the event and people who did held it. And it looked like it was maybe a bit of a stretch for the hand. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you can hold that in one hand, even though that's what they're promoting. Yeah, and frankly, I'm a little, I'm a little wondering about. I like the thin margins, the the thin Thin frame, yeah, the bezel. On the other hand, it's useful that it's it's a holdable dead zone. Right. On the current size pad, and I find myself sometimes my hands will wander on the screen and like trigger something that I don't mean to do. So you won't be able to do that on this pad. Well, apparently, they've you know, patched iOS to uh, reject accidental touches on the side. Oh, again, you, no they one knows till we try it. Somehow. They somehow it knows when you want to touch it and don't. Remember that was a problem with the first Kindle was you'd <laughs> you'd hold it uh, and it turned the page by accident. Oh my God! Yes, yeah. it was impo- it was it was so annoying because everyone would want to you know take it from me, but it was all you know it was all page turn button, right. and I'd be like, uh, okay, <laughs> hold it oh, right right over here in order <laughs> yeah. not to. They fixed lose. that. Amazon did fix that. Yeah. So it, 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 you know, I'm withholding judgment until I actually hold one in my hands. I can't tell if it's going to be worth it. I certainly I love my Nexus Seven. I like the idea of a seven inch tablet. I really like the Galaxy Seven when it came out. Um, so we'll just withhold. Yeah. yeah. And, and for me, I guess I'm, you know, it, we're, we're, we have the iPad one resolution that's been reduced in size. So the, the pixels per inch increases, yet the overall resolution is still 1024 by 768. So it's the same quarter of the resolution of the third generation and fourth generation, the newly announced fourth generation full-size iPad, for me, I think that's still the sweet spot. I, I like having, you know, a screen that, that that's that size. Because, I mean, I, I use it more than I use any other device. It, I just love my iPad. Did you get, have you got your paper white yet? Oh, I was just going to take us there. Okay, yes. take us there, baby. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I really like it. Um, and it's it's interesting because... If you turn the, the – there was a lot of hype about it. And I was interested to see, for example, if they actually increased the resolution, if they actually increased the contrast. Well, they didn't. Um, they carefully designed the fonts, which absolutely makes total sense to have done that. But if you turn the light off and hold – the two next, uh, you know, like right next to each other, showing exactly the same image. I've done A-B comparisons. There's no difference whatsoever. So I think, I, and, and I remember when they went to like the DX versus the earlier one, they were saying, oh, yeah, we've done much more uh, uh, contrast. No, not much more. You know, they keep making the frame around it darker so that the background of the e-ink screen looks lighter by comparison. So now the the paper white, I mean, don't don't get me wrong, I love it, but it's I I I'm annoyed by bogus claims, and so with no light on, they are identical gray on gray, you know, dark gray on light gray, but it's spooky as you bring the illumination up, it has the effect of only lightening the background and not apparently lightening the 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 dark print. And so it is with with that illumination turned up, even just like a quarter of the way or a third of the way, not so that it's, you know, a flashlight, but just so that it it, it really does increase the contrast. And uh, so it's super effective. And in fact, I was all only talking about it from a from a lighting standpoint. Um, and, you know, I, I 
gave Jenny hers when uh, the day after it came and she wrote the next morning and she said, the light is not my favorite part. It's all the other features. The, what is it they call it? The bones of the book. I think that's the, the bones. It's something. Um, can't remember the term. There's like, they've, they've done something that gives you much more visibility into the structure of the book. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, X-ray. <laughs> X-ray. <laughs> yeah, I, I see where your mind was going with that. X-ray. <laughs> Look into the book. They do that with movies and TV. It's kind of interesting. As On the Kindle Fire HD, as you're watching a movie, it, it will pop up in the controls uh, the name of a cast member on the screen, and you could click it. It will go to Wikipedia. It's an interesting idea. Yeah. A, a nice way of leveraging the the, uh, the medium. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, I got while again while going through the mailbag, I ran across a uh, a note from Mike Woods in Cheshire, uh, UK, uh, who was wondering about Spinrite's double bit flip, which I talked about. I think it was last week, and I thought since we're doing a Q and A this week, in the spirit of Q and A. I would share this. He said, hi, Steve. Thanks for the look under the hood of Spinrite. Your explanation of the way it flips all the bits twice to test the surface was fascinating. I have a question, though. As a satisfied user, I know that when Spinrite gets to a problem area on a drive, it slows down and can take hours before moving on. How does that work? Is it just flipping the bits continuously until they come back the same as they are sent, Mike. And so uh, the answer is no. Um, the the bit flipping that I talked about is what Spinrite does to to test the surface, and in modern drives, essentially assist the drive itself in recognizing there's a problem. Remember that. Well, once upon a time, drives were dumb. And so Spinrite had all of the technology in it for relocating defective sectors somewhere else. It understood the file system. It knew how to mark the sector bad in the low-level format to prevent it from ever being used again, even if you reformatted the drive. It understood how to parse everything in the file allocation table and directories and everything so that it was able to essentially dynamically relocate data that had been recovered to somewhere safe and then and then knit the file system back together with the data moved. None of that is necessary today because drives have taken over that responsibility. The problem is having responsibility and executing on that responsibility are two different things. As I've said before, it's only when the drive is asked to read the data that it's able to detect that the data can't be or is difficult to read. Um, and so, if and so, there's a there's like a gray zone, uh, if you can think of it that way. If if there's if if it reads with no trouble at all, then the drive's happy. If it if it's unable to correct the data. Then the drive is not happy, and it's that's when it returns an error saying, "I can't read the sector." It's only when there when you're in between that when there when there was a problem that required correction, and that the correction was severe enough 
that the drive starts to get worried that it may not be able to correct it next time, that then the drive is stimulated to relocate the sector to somewhere safe. So so Spinrite's um, arduous recovery process happens first and only after it's able to recover the data from the sector does it then invert that twice in order to see whether whether there's actually a problem on the physical sector or whether for example uh, today drives are so that the the track densities are so high that if you bump the drive while you're writing to it that the head will be <laughs> will be jerked off center and so it could write that track a little bit away from center so there's nothing wrong with that location it's just that some vibration hit it at the wrong time so once spinrite recovers the data it then does its double bit flip to to see whether like to show the drive whether there's a problem or not and if there's not a problem it'll put it back down where it got it if there is a problem then the drive will say oh it's not safe to put the the data here and it'll handle the rela- the relocation on on our behalf so it's a little complicated, but it all works. Pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah. We uh, have questions. You have answers. Before we get to those, if you don't mind, I'd like to mention our friends at the Ford Motor Company. I was watching a really good, there's a new uh, channel, a history channel series on um, the titans of industry that built this country uh, at the turn of the century. And, you know, the, the, they were real capitalists. And the, the, it not only started that, but it also started the labor movement in the United States because they were 12-hour days and six-day work yep. weeks. Just fascinating. I was watching Andrew Carnegie uh, versus uh, John D. Rockefeller. I don't know if they've done one on Henry Ford, but, uh, again, fascinating guy who more than 100 years ago changed America. And one of the things they said in it, and I think this is really true, is that by figuring out how to make cars affordable, this was Henry Ford's great dream and goal. You know, cars had been out for a while when he created the Model A and then later the Model T, but they weren't affordable. They were for the very wealthy. And he said, I want to make it, I want to make it so that anybody can afford a car. And uh, he did through the, the creation of the Great Rouge plant, where you box load, you know, train cars full of ore, iron ore, and lumber would go in one end of this, I think camera was four or five square mile plant, and, and a car would come out the other end. Just amazing. And, and, and invented the assembly line and, and all of that. And it really did, in fact, change the face of America. It was high tech of, of the most amazing kind. What's interesting, of course, is we're in a very different era, very different time. And uh, unlike a lot of companies that have found the digital era so challenging that they're not around anymore, Ford has become a 21st century car company. And it's so impressive uh, what Ford has done, the, the, the way that they have put technology in their vehicles and, uh, and made them fit the modern time. Uh, the EcoBoost engine makes gas engines so much more efficient without sacrificing power. The electric vehicle technology they've created, the hybrid vehicle technology they've created. The desire, instead of creating one showpiece electric car, to make all of the vehicles in the Ford line capable of gas, diesel, hybrid, and electric. Uh, this is the goal. This is what's amazing about the Ford Motor Company. And, of course, 
They don't ignore us because inside the car, Ford Sync. And, uh, you, you know, it, it's funny. I think it was Walt Mossberg who said, you know, until Ford came up with this, when you got in a motor vehicle, you were going back to the early 20th century, disconnected from your world. The issue, of course, is, yeah, you can connect to the Internet. You can connect to Pandora and Stitcher. You can connect to iHeartRadio, Twitter and Facebook. But can you do it safely? And what Ford came up with, I think, is inspired. It's the Ford Sync voice-controlled solution. It means you never take your hands off the wheel. You never take your eyes off the road. You push a button on the steering wheel and you talk to your car and it will listen. You can do things like bring your iPhone or iPod or Android phone or Windows phone. Plug it into the USB port on all Ford vehicles with Sync and Sync with My Ford Touch. And then you can control your music player. Browse it by genre, album, artist, playlist, or song title. All with your voice without touching a button. Voice-activated control. Plays a list of music you're in the mood for. You can play similar music. You can voice control your music no matter how it starts on your smartphone via A2DP Bluetooth streaming. You could even plug in a USB drive or a thumb drive with MP3s on it or your iPad, iPod, iPhone, and it'll play from there. iTunes tagging means with available sync with my Ford Touch and HD radio, that as you're listening to a song, even on HD radio, you could say, hey, tag that song. And when you get back to the house, you could purchase it directly from the iTunes store. Best of all, Ford is offering sync now on every 2012, 2013 Ford vehicle sold in the United States, including that sweet Ford Focus. You know what I'm actually interested in getting now, I've decided, is I'm, I'm going don't, to, don't yell at me. Trade in the Mustang. I got the 2010 Mustang. I love the sync. I love the Mustang. I want to trade it in because I want to be a good citizen for the new Fusion, the energy. It's a plug-in hybrid. So you can run it as electric vehicles. You're running about town, but you have unlimited range because it also uh, will, you can put gas in it. It's a plug-in hybrid. It's a great idea. And, of course, it too, like all the Ford vehicles, supports sync. Just say the word. Go to your Ford dealer. Say, I want to test drive that Ford Sync I keep hearing Leo talk about. All the uh, the uh, road assist services, too, using your smartphone, because they know your smartphone is going to get updated faster than your, your car will. Go to a Ford dealer near you and go further in a Ford. Visit uh, Ford.com slash technology to find out more. All right, Steve, I got questions. You got we're answers. not going to ever. We're never going to be upset with you for switching to a plug-in hybrid, Leo. That's no. very cool. Yeah, no, I'm excited. Very I'm really cool. excited. I I couldn't do it when I lived in an apartment because I know where to plug it in, right? Nope. <laughs> this is a minor problem for apartment dwellers, uh, but now I've moved into a house a couple of weeks ago, and I love a beautiful house. I've got a garage. And I'm just going to get the, uh, they, you know, I have 220 in the garage for the dryer, but I also can put it in there for the, the, the charger. And this, this thing charges in uh, half the time of the other ones. And you drive around town, which is most of what I do. It's all electric. You never use any gas. Nice. So I can't wait. I'm really, really excited about this. Anyway, enough. Okay. Enough. Let's get to questions. Ten of them. Where were we? Where was we? Starting with question number one from Patrick Petrov in Gothenburg, Sweden. I, by the way, just love our international audience. I just think oh, we, we have a strong international audience. Yes. Well, this show especially, I think, because as you said, there's nothing like this anywhere in the world. 
And so, well, and I guess the feedback allows us to get a sense for where yeah, our that. listeners are, yeah. because otherwise you're just sort of broadcasting to the internet and you don't know where everybody exactly. is. But, exactly. you know, we do know. You know, I kind of know, too, because during a Twit and many of the other shows, but Twit ah. especially, we have live audiences. And right. it has now become my stock question. Okay, how many? who's traveled the farthest? How many of you oh. are outside the U.S.? And there's at least two or three international listeners always in the audience, often from Scandinavia. We're big. There was somebody in from Norway yesterday. Patrick Petrov says, hi, Steve, a small side. By the way, he sounds Russian, doesn't he? A small side note that you might want to share on security now is the fact that DNS Crypt uses, ready for it, ECC, that new that uh, uh, thing we were talking about last week. Elliptic curve crypto. That's what I was trying to remember. I keep wanting to say error correction. I, uh, <laughs> me too. <laughs> From the Open DNS FAQ, question four. Is this using SSL? What's the crypto and what's the design? Open DNS is a service, free and paid service that we talk about a lot, opendns.com. We are not using SSL. While we make the analogy that DNS crypt is like SSL in that it wraps all DNS traffic with encryption, the same way SSL wraps all HTTP traffic. It's not the crypto library being used. We are using elliptical curve crypto. In particular, the curve 25519 elliptical curve. The design goals are similar to those described in the DNS curve forwarder design. Wow. I So I have to say I love the open DNS. Well, Every and this was in my notes last week. And since I don't literally read, read my notes, yeah. I just forgot to mention this. But I, I want, so I wanted, I saw Patrick's note, uh, wow. and I said, Hey, let's, you know, I want to make sure that I remember uh, that I remind our listeners that yes, everything we heard and learned about elliptic curve crypto and the crazy way it works applies to DNS crypt, which I know we have a huge number of listeners who are open DNS fans and users and have been experimenting with DNS crypt. ECC is perfect for that because you in, in the whole point of DNS is that, as we've often discussed, it uses the UDP Internet Protocol um, rather than TCP. TCP makes sense for establishing a relatively persistent connection. UDP makes sense for a, a query and response which is much lower overhead. With TCP, as we've discussed when we talk about it, there is first the three-way handshake of a SYN, a SYNAC, and an ACK. Then you've, you've established your, your low-level connection. Then you negotiate the SSL handshake, which again is multiple packets while everybody agrees on what they're going to do and so forth. And only after all that can you begin to actually send data. Well, that would be a huge amount of overhead to put into DNS. So DNS crypt uses ECC because you're able to you're able to use DNS to get the public key of the 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 DNS domain that you're wanting to get authoritative information from and then and then make a single query which is encrypted and receive a single reply packet which is also encrypted so you get you get authentication and privacy 
and ver and super low packet level overhead, but also thanks to the efficiency of elliptic curve crypto, it's low level processing overhead. So it's just a, a perfect use of elliptic curve crypto. And I was glad that Patrick reminded me that I forgot to bring that up last week. And I know that our listeners who are open DNS users would uh, would find that interesting. As, as are most of us, certainly I am. I love open DNS. It's, it's nice, though. You know, you put your trust in a company and, uh, you know, based on whatever research you do. And uh, it's but it's nice to get that reaffirmed from time to time. Oh, yeah, they, they really are state of the art. You know, I just they're I doing just, it right. Yeah. Yes. I just love that. And, of course, we did talk about the fact they're using DNS crypt uh, some time ago. Uh, David in Durham, North Carolina, wonders about practical fingerprint reader insecurity. Steve, on your last feedback episode, you mentioned how UPEC fingerprint reading software has very weak encryption in the registry for your credentials. I have a Del Vostro. I always say Vostro. <laughs> Vostro. I don't know why, but it seems like it should be a Vostro. Uh, I have a Dell Vostro 3550 that has a fingerprint reader on it. I don't use the laptop in a public place very often, but when I do or when I take it to work, once in a while I work from home, I've learned how to use the Windows key L sequence, Windows L, when I leave it alone. I'm also doing these things needed to make sure I don't get any virus infection on the computer. With that in mind, how accessible is my registry to those that do not have direct access to my computer, physical access, or without a Trojan or virus? If it's hard to get access to the registry, does it matter that it's not, you know, super well encrypted? P.S. I just checked with Windows 7. RegEdit does require administrator permission to run, even if you're already logged in as the administrator. You have to escalate. I guess I'd better change my settings so that I have to at least swipe my finger to run it. And if that's true about RegEdit, what if any security measures are present for a program to read the registry? I'm thinking none. What do you say, Steve? So that's this is a great point. I mean, this is the difference between and, – and it's a – well, it's the difference between a theoretical problem and a practical problem, which is why I, I use the word practical fingerprint reader insecurity. Um the reason this was a concern in the in the security industry and is potentially a concern for users, or if nothing else, you just need to be informed, is Microsoft did the right thing by never storing a decryptable anything information in Windows that would allow the reverse engineering of the username and password. Microsoft doesn't do it. So the security event that was a concern was the discovery that this UPEC software was not very difficult to get that from. That is, to they were storing the username and password, and, and you could reverse that to, to acquire them. So except for people using the UPEC fingerprint system, that would not be possible. So, so it's a different thing to say, okay, you know, so what does that mean? Well, it just sort of says there's a problem. But, but David's right in questioning, well, okay, so but practically, what, you know, how worried should I be? And I would say eh, probably not very because the, 
the danger would be that something malicious gets into your system and and then looks to see that whether you are using the UPEC software, goes into the registry, gets the data, and is able to decrypt it. So, so then the problem is that this malware, which you've already got in, are already, gets to know your username and password. Well, it already is running in your computer. So it's achieved most of what it would want to do with your username and password. Yes, there are all kinds of privilege uh, escalation attacks that it could employ if it wasn't empowered to do that. But hopefully the registry is protected. He asks about needing privilege to access RegEdit itself. It turns out that the there is an extreme granularity of security in the registry. Individual items in the registry can have full-on windows, you know, ACL, access control lists applied to them. So security is very granular. So it's not just regedit that you need to have access to. It's your logon credentials allow you to see and read and alter that information with, with a high level of granularity. So it's very well designed at that level. Um, so... So I, anyway, I, I like this question because it, it allowed us to look at, okay, what's the theoretical problem versus the practical problem? Theoretically, the, the concern was there's, you know, they were storing data that was your username and password that, that could be extracted and, and returned to plain text. Microsoft never does that. So this represented, you know, a, a, a chink in the armor, essentially. But in order for that to be valuable something has to get that data and you have to be in the machine already so your machine's already compromised typically in order for that to be a problem and i don't I, that's probably not a big deal i always you, that's me by the way you're channeling me cuz i always ask that question but how much <laughs> yeah. of a how much should i worry about this right that's always right. my question taylor in uh, the greater seattle area <laughs> It must be his phrase. I can't imagine you saying that. Says, no, that's, that's, that's how he described where he was. I am in yeah. greater Seattle. It's probably in Redmond, Washington, right? How can we stay safe? Hi, I've been listening to your podcasts. I love them. They're a great source of information. They cover a lot of little topics very, very well. But I'm wondering, if you could set up an ideal install, say, of, I don't know, Windows 7, what would you do? What would you do, Steve Gibson, to keep it safe? Uh, personally, I'm using Windows 7, 64-bit. My daily use account is not an admin account. I have a secondary account for when I need admin privileges with a separate password for my main account. I use it vast when scanning to set high, set to high sensitivity, and it's behavior shield set to ask me if it should allow a system change instead of deciding on its own. I use Firefox, the 64-bit Waterfox variant. And run it with a sandbox. Avast offers a sandbox that you can use on demand on to uh, paying users with AdBlock Plus and no script installed. <laughs> this guy has double barred the door. I do scans every few months with SpyBot Search and Destroy, and I make sure not to visit any shady websites. I've also used Shields Up, that's Steve's uh, online service, to make sure I had a 100% true stealth rating. And as if that were not enough, I also use Key Scrambler to prevent key logging 
Should something somehow get onto my computer? This guy's worried about something. I don't know what. These are all free services minus the manual sandbox in a vast. Well, it does have a sandbox in the free version. You can't manually tell it to run in a sandbox. It'll decide based on whether it thinks that thing can be a threat. So he's decided to pay for a bass, so he has the ability to tell it. Run everything in a sandbox. All this has a very, very minimal impact on system resources and responsiveness, but I'm always searching for ways to harden my security. Do you have any advice for me, or am I good? <laughs> wow. Well, yes. Uh, Taylor, I think you are think you're good. You are <laughs> wrapped up so tight. It's, it's amazing you can get anything any, anything done with that he may He may have overdone it even. No, I I respect what he's done. I I know that we have a lot of listeners who are running similarly. Um, I mean, and there are people who, um, who could use more security like he's employed. Um, you know, who are unfortunately getting themselves infected all the time because right. they're not. The only thing that occurs to me in listening to all that is that you might want to crank up user account control to its you know, one notch above its default in Windows 7. It's easy to find it. You just put UAC in the little search term after you click the start button, you know, where you find stuff. Put UAC and there's one um, item it'll find and it'll bring you up that slider, which is a four-step slider. It's normally set the default is to the next to the highest you can knock it up to the highest um, if you'd like a little more protection from things altering your system. Um, and that's the only thing I could really, a simple, easy thing to do if you really want to, you know, if, if a belt and suspenders are not enough, you'd also like to you know, suspend gravity so that your pants can't <laughs> fall down by themselves. Uh, wow. That ought to do it. Yeah. That's 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 it's going a little farther than than I go, but yeah, yeah. And I should probably be doing all this because I am probably a target of hackers in way as a public figure, as are you, in ways that somebody who's a private individual might not be. Well, there there are the active attacks and the passive attacks, and most people are being affected. I mean, yes, spear phishing is a problem. Someone sends you email deliberately designed for you to look like somebody you know, look like a service you're using. I mean, I, I've gotten some some PayPal spam, and, and I'm a PayPal user, and I was like, uh, okay, wait a minute. And, and then I look, and I realize, oh, they sent this to the email address in my who is, right. um, you know, uh, re- registration instead of <laughs> the what PayPal knows me as. So, yeah, you you do need to just, you know, be on the lookout. Michael in Europe uh, is coming up. He's going to show us the catch-22 of uh, Facebook friends' login authentication. We'll talk about that in just a second. But I did want to interrupt, if you don't mind, to talk a little bit about audible.com. I know you don't do audiobooks. We'll we'll win you over someday, Steve. I'm a reader. I'm an actual visual reader as opposed to redefining the word read (laughs) i've redefined the word but the reason i've redefined the word is i don't have uh, much free time i don't uh you know and i uh i can't i i don't know how you do it i cannot read on the stairmaster you somehow don't mind the bobbing um so when i exercise uh i'd like to read anything to distract uh even housework walking the dog and certainly uh when i'm doing driving because i otherwise road rage will happen 
And now I've I've really gone gone hardcore. You know, I have a Sonos uh, system which I'm a big fan of, and uh, Sonos supports Audible.com. So I have speakers throughout the house. And now because I live alone, there's a certain advantage to that. I can have my audiobook like all day, just running in the house, and it is awesome. So I get I I now you know one of the things that was bugging me is I didn't get enough time to read. I was so busy that I just didn't get to read all I wanted to, and I actually kind of stopped reading for a while. Then it, I during the commute to Tech TV in the uh, in late nineties and early two thousands, two hours three hours a day in the car, I realized I'm going to do something or I'm going to go crazy here. I, I found audible.com and I started listening on a diamond Rio. That's actually, no, they had a device like the, it was called the auto or something before there was an MP3 portable MP3 players. They had a device and then I got the diamond Rio and I've been an audible listener ever since 500 books later, I can heartily recommend audiobooks. It's the best way in my opinion to read when you just don't have the opportunity to hold a book or a Kindle. By the way, it works really nicely with the Kindle. Audible is owned by Amazon, and this WhisperSync for audiobooks works with uh, the Kindle. So you can be reading a book and then get in the car, and the book will pick, the reader will pick up where you left off. I mean, now, come on, Steve. This is perfect. You don't ever get in the car, do you? This is, <laughs> you don't drive. This is perfect for anybody who does spend a lot of time. I said heartily, not hardly recommend. I could heartily, with great heartiness, recommend audible.com. Now, here's the deal. I'm going to give you two free books. First of all, as always, you can go to Audible uh, and get a free book by going to audiblepodcast.com slash security. Now, that'll sign you up for the book a month club, the gold account, they call it. Uh, you get a credit a month. Your first month's free. Your first book is free. And you can cancel at any time, but the book is yours to keep forever. But then... You can also go to audible.com slash Sanderson and get another free book. And this is a great way without a membership or if, even if you're already a member, this is a great way to get an audio book and listen. And this is a really good one. Oliver Wyman narrates this novella. It's only a couple of hours about it's I've, I've I'm in the beginning of it. It's hysterical. It's so funny. Uh, it, it's a it's kind of sci-fi fantasy. The hero his name is Stephen Leeds, but they call him Legion because he hallucinates a legion of other people around him, and he does kind of sleuth work with them. It's really great. He knows their hallucinations. Other don't, others don't see them, but they tell him stuff. It's really, really a great novel or novella, I guess. So you can get that free by going to audible.com slash Sanderson. It's at, I mean, totally no account needed or anything. Or if you're already an Audible member, as I am, just get it. But if you're not a member, go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now and get yet another book. And there are so many good choices. You know, Cloud Atlas is coming out, and I'm very excited about this movie. But as always, I have a preference. I like to read the book before I see the movie. So the Jenny um, Jenny belongs to a a, a Laguna Beach uh, book club book club yeah and it's the best book they have ever read wow they've never before done two meetings on this one book it's or fascinating any one book and they they're doing two meetings to discuss the book because well, they just went wild for it I can't, I can't wait to see the movie and you've probably seen yeah. the trailers Tom Hanks is in it. This um, Friday it opens. Yeah, in two days. and so I have two days to finish. <laughs> it's nineteen hours. I've got about five to go, so I, I should be able to make it. Wow, it's a tour de force in writing. Anyway, um, just very interesting. 
Uh, you got to check it out. Yes, they do have uh, Zero Day Now, Mark Krasinovich's novel. They have a lot of good books. That's actually the hard part about Audible is picking a book. Well, that's why you've got to, uh, frankly, that's why you've got to subscribe. But at least get that first book uh, free. And get the Sanderson book, too, because you'll like it. If you like Zero Day, if you like sci-fi, you'll like it. AudiblePodcast.com slash security now. Try it today. I know you're going to love it. You know, and of course they got the apps for all and all that stuff for all the uh, all the phones and all that stuff. All right, I have another question for you, Steve. As one might expect, Michael in Europe, and I mentioned is that he catch twenty two of the friends log on authentication on uh, Facebook. When I first heard Scott's suggestion on how to handle the OAuth authentication spoofing problem that I initially raised a few weeks ago, I really loved the idea of showing the user photos. Of his Facebook friends. Incidentally, I just wanted to mention this. Leo Laporte speaking now. They do. They actually do this. It happened to me the other day. It said we have three different ways you can authenticate. You can have a message text to you. You can. I, mean, I can't remember what the three were. But one of them was identify friends. And I remembered our conversation. I said, I can't believe this. So I tried it. It's hard because... <laughs> You may not recognize everybody, and they ah. have to, you have to recognize a certain number of them to get in. Eventually, I just gave up. It was it's a lot more cumbersome, as you might imagine, to do this. Anyway, just so you know, Facebook does in fact do this. Uh, after thinking about it for a while, I started wondering: to show photos of your Facebook friends, doesn't Facebook first have to know who you are? And if you're currently not logged in, how could Facebook do that safely before you enter your login credentials? Whoops. Well, well, I actually no, because when you try to log. Well, I'll explain what's going on with Facebook. Considering that this is supposed to prevent you from entering your credentials on a malicious site, I think this could only work if Facebook or other OAuth supporting services would heavily rely on the tracking of logged out users. Or am I missing something here? You, I'm sure, are going to say something, Steve. But I should point out that you are giving it your email address and then saying, I would like to authenticate as this person. Well, and that's just the point. Is that is who is authenticating whom here? Um, what Michael was talking about is different than what you're talking about. I, 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 your experience is you proving to Facebook right. that you are oh. who you say you are. He was talking about an OAuth situation. I get it. Yes. Yeah. And remember that, we, that, that we realized there would be a big potential problem, which I really do think we're going to have, with people getting used to the convenience of OAuth, which is what is the underlying technology that allows that, you know, log in using your Facebook account, which we're seeing more and more frequently because it's so effective. It's a much lower friction means of authenticating for so many people who are also Facebook users when they're going to some other site where, they're, where they haven't been before. They don't want to create an account just for that visit. So they authenticate using their Facebook credentials. And the problem, of course, is that that site takes you to Facebook. It would be very easy for it to take you to a Facebook spoof site where you then authenticate to Facebook or you think you are, but you're not. So the idea was, oh, show us, you know, have make Facebook show you your friends so that you know it's really Facebook that that you're authenticating to, which is the reverse model of what you were explaining, Leo, where you're proving to Facebook you are you by selecting your friends from among a, a, a grid of imposters. So 
Um, and the point is, Michael's exactly right. Um, it is. It doesn't work to have Facebook show you your friends because we've already covered exploits of this sort or this ilk, if I may use that word, um, uh, where where the malicious site would go to Facebook, pick up pictures of your friends, which if Facebook was showing you your friends, and then present them to you, so it's able to, it would give, it'd be able to get around using known friends and having Facebook prove that it is that it is Facebook you're authenticating to. So, uh, Michael's right. The the suggestion that that we entertained a, a couple of weeks ago has a catch twenty two problem. It's funny too because I I had this itch when we were talking about it. it's like something doesn't feel right about that. But you know this is exactly the problem. So good one. Yeah, Mike. that that's a good catch, of course. And so that's the different situation. Uh, as an OAuth uh, provider, wouldn't be a good choice. Right. In, in OAuth, you're one. The, the, the you the, know nothing. The potential the potential exploit is you authenticate to a spoofed site. Right. So the idea was how to prevent the site being spoofed right. in, in what you were describing, Leo. It, I know it's direction. Facebook because I went there. Right. Unless somebody and you're, and, and you're then being asked to prove that you are who right. you are right. to Facebook. Yep. It was a little onerous, I guess. <laughs> after about the eighth picture, and about three of them, I go, I have no idea. That. Now, maybe that's because I have more friends than I ought to. But it takes pictures, at least the way Facebook's doing it, it, it. So it says, okay, this person's your friend. And it takes a random picture from their collection, which uh, could be a baby picture. Yeah. You know, it's not that easy. It probably should take the profile picture would be. But even that, many of my friends don't have themselves in their profile picture. Right. Right. So it's uh, nice. It was a clever yeah, I mean, thought. The problem with OAuth is, I mean, in this mode, is very much like the 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 problem we fall into, where the advice for preventing it has been: don't ever install software you didn't ask for. That is, you didn't go looking for. I love that advice because you know, oftentimes, one way or the other, we're being asked to install something. You go to a site, oh, you know, click this to install this control for to get the full benefit of the site or whatever. Or you, you're somewhere else. It's like, oh, you need to update your Flash Viewer in order to, you know, to watch the movies here. Well, that's the way people get themselves zapped all the time. They didn't go seeking that software. Similarly, you're, um, you know, you 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 just made the point. You knew you were at Facebook because you went to Facebook. Right. OAuth. Uh, it offers the convenience of taking you there. Well, that's the being taken there by a third-party site is very similar to being, you know, offered software, which, you know, you didn't go seeking. So the better way to make OAuth safe would be to log into Facebook on one page of your browser persistently, you know, stay logged in, then go log in here. You should be able to bounce over to Facebook where you're already logged in and then bounce right back. In which case you've 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 short circuited the possibility of having to be asked to authenticate to Facebook. But again, that, that sort of blows the whole benefit and the convenience of OAuth. So that's <laughs> not going to work either. There, there's you know these, these problems don't have easy solutions. No, that's why or maybe uh, yeah. maybe any solution. Right, right. It's thorny. <laughs> Kevin Doubt 
in the Netherlands. See, another international listener has been thinking about mm. software whitelisting. I listened to this podcast uh, about whitelisting of software. I thought it, in principle, a good idea, but I wondered, what's your opinion about who defines the whitelist? Ah. Comparing uh, software whitelisting like Apple does in its iOS to firewalls wouldn't be the same as, let's say, Microsoft defining what ports are open on your firewall. Would you lay this power to one company known for excluding software on iOS for other reasons than security? Ah. Wouldn't it be better if the user himself could decide which whitelist to use? Yeah, I, I, I thought this was interesting because it sort of pulls us forward to the next part of the problem. It's easy to say, oh, whitelisting is the future. But then it's like, okay, where does the whitelist come from? Right. You know, how, how do we decide? If the user is in control, then you might as well not have it. Because it's like, oh, well, <laughs> they're not going to do I wanna, it. I, yeah. I want to run this software. Right. What do you mean I can't run yeah, this Yeah, in software? fact, you are in control right now. I mean, you know, you decide what sites you go to. Yeah, how, how's that just, working out for you? <laughs> exactly. I, I think what the the way we're going to solve this ultimately is we're going to have systems which are more bulletproof. Yeah. Where I mean, th there are many times I'm seeing things in email on my Win on, on my Windows machine, and I say to myself, oh, I'll have my iPad in a few hours when I'm out. I'm going to open this and poke around then." I mean, I'm 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 saying to myself, I don't trust doing anything on a Windows platform. The iPad is safer as I as I am using it. I mean, the fact that it doesn't have Flash or Java, and it's just you know, it's it's a little bit of it's like having a sandbox. Yeah, uh, it's a little bit of containment. Uh, moving along to Chris Ward in Houston, Texas. He's a little worried about Amazon's ebook ownership policy. I don't know if you saw uh, this story, but it was a kind of a shocker to me, too. And I actually tweeted this a couple of days ago. So did Corey yep. Doctora. I know you're an avid Kindle fan, as am I, Steve, and, I, and you read a lot of ebooks. I'm really disturbed about a recent article about Amazon mysteriously deleting a user's account, and more importantly, all the books on their Kindle. Without warning or reason, it's uh, he points to an article at Boing Boing where Corey, I'm sure, posted the details. I'll uh, go there in a second. Amazon offer and often charges more for ebooks than paperbacks. I don't know if that's relevant anyway, but now it appears you don't even buy them. You are only renting at Amazon's whim. This is extremely disturbing to me, even though I have backups. And I suppose I could strip out the DRM if it came to that, like many other Security Now listeners. But it seems like this move is a huge step backwards for ebooks. I'm curious about your thoughts. And from a security point of view, what's the best way for legal ebook owners to protect those ebooks they have rightfully purchased? Well, okay, a couple things. Let me, um, let me, can I uh, 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 summarize the uh, story so that people yeah, know? Yeah. Um, it was a user, I think, in the UK. I'm trying to remember uh, where, um, who um, just all of a sudden got her uh, Amazon library deleted without explanation. Actually, no, I'm sorry. She's Nor Norwegian. Uh, her name was Lynn, L-I-N-N. Her access was revoked without warning. Her account was closed. Her Kindle was wiped remotely. Mm. Um, and then I I read this on the Norwegian blog, as did uh, apparently Corey and others. Now, again, because this 
Martin Beckerlund and his blog doesn't give us the name of the last name of Lynn. We can't v- verify this. Um, but the um, huh, uh, the emails coming from Amazon said, now remember she's Norwegian. Your Amazon UK account has been closed. And it has come to our attention this account is related to a previously blocked account. And we can't tell you any more than that. She asks for more information. They say, we can't tell you anymore. She asks again. They said, no, this is it. We're not going to tell you anymore. Don't try to create another account. Bye-bye. And uh, she's out of luck. Now, apparently, according to Boing Boing, uh, there's an update on this story. Um, Her account was mysteriously reactivated after this article was published. But it does raise the question, who owns those books? And and if you somehow piss off Amazon or iTunes or Audible uh, and they decide to eliminate your account. Now, in the case of Audible, they can't erase the Audible tracks, but you can't play them unless you put them on an iPod or something like that. So what do you think? Well, I can speak to Amazon and Kindle because I've looked in years past closely at the way it works. Um, and I, there was something that happened to me where I felt I was being unjustly restricted. I think I had there was a book that I was reading um, that had a very low download count, and I hit the download limit. Uh, and I had I had read it over on my on a PC that I use as as it happens with a stair climber, and I had reset up the machine and it still thought that that other instance of kindle on the pc existed so it had i've I've never had much success backing down that that download limit when you hit it most books i've never had a problem with i've got them i've got i don't know 15 kindles or something um and i don't put things on every kindle but anyway the point is that out of curiosity i experimented with calibre and oh boy, is that effective! What is it? Um, uh, it just strips the DRM right off. How do you spell of, it? All of C A L I B R E, and it is a general purpose oh, caliber. E-book. Interesting pronunciation. Yeah, caliber. <laughs> oh, I thought it was calibre. Well, it might be. It's probably play, a play on the on libre or free. That's what I thought. But I, we've, I've, I know about this, and we've always called it caliber. Oh, okay. Calibre. Um, I like that, too. You know what? <laughs> Who knows who's right? Anyway, so, uh, I mean, it works. It's free. And I was surprised, and it's a, it's a nice e-booking, e-book archiving system. Now, I ended up removing it from my system because I don't use it. I was just sort of curious, does this really happen? Does it work? And so forth. In the case of Kindle, it is also a, 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 a portable storage device. You can plug it into a PC or I presumably a Mac, although I never have. And there is a documents folder and there's all your eBooks. So it is possible for a user to back up his Kindle or her Kindle onto any other device. The books are relatively small. They're .mobi format and, and then restore them. The books are locked to that device unless you go and remove the DRM, which there are tools for doing. 
um, and, and they're effective. There was also, I think it was a format conversion I needed there, and where I needed to remove the DRM for some purpose. Anyway, you know, something that I owned, I had purchased, and I thought, so I, okay, I feel like I have a legitimate, um, you know, I'm not stealing this from anyone, a, a legitimate reason for doing this. Um, so that technology exists. It is very disturbing to, to, to think that it would be possible for someone's previously purchased product ever to be taken from them. This is a problem when everything goes E and we've got connected devices and at the publisher's whim, these things can be removed. I mean, we're seeing stories drift out about, you know, this happening on iOS devices or Windows 8 and, and so forth. So um, at least in the case of the Kindle, you can back up your library and maintain your own copies. And, and should, um, apparently. Yes, and uh, exactly. Very good point. If you were concerned about this, it makes sense to do it. And it's pretty simple. I, I think the issue is also uh, this kind of, um, first of all, we're used to books, paper books. And, yes. And nobody who sells me a book can come into my house and take the book. Right. And say, no, no, yeah. we don't look like behind, you anymore. Look behind me yeah. on the video. They can't video. take You'll it. You'll see walls of books. Right. Yep. But I should point out that uh, Amazon is not selling you a book. They're giving you a revocable license to read the book. So Correct. they're not doing anything that they haven't already said to you that they could do if they choose. Yep. And that's part of the deal. Um, and so there's this disconnect because we think about books and Amazon's thinking about DRM data that they rented. <laughs> so um, you, you, I'm sure you're violating the terms of service by removing DRM and backing them up anyway. Um, well, wait, wait. Uh, let, let's be clear. You can back them up with and leave the DRM in place. So, But then you're still you, screwed because if you don't have an Amazon account, you know, it phones home and, and validates. And I don't think it does, Leo. I really? think it's locked. Yeah, it's locked to the device. Oh, okay. So if you, turn, if you turned okay. off the radio, then you could restore the book anytime you wanted to to That's that good. to that Kindle, and it would read it just fine. That's good. And the, and there, yeah. the problem is, you know, of course there is a doctrine, which is a defense, by the way, uh, not an offense of fair use that you have the right to back up data. But but yep. this but it's not a law, <laughs> and the DMCA does not does not say that, and et cetera et cetera. But um, so there is this disconnect between the old way of doing things and the new way of doing things. Uh, yeah, and I'm not defending funny. it. I think it's something we got to be very aware of, and I think you're right. People got to back up, but nobody backs up their Kindle. And and you mentioned the DMCA, and I you know it just sends a chill down my spine when I think about how security researchers have been blocked from from researching crypto by the DMCA. And what, sh what condition would we be in if people, for example, were unable to notify Oracle that there were problem, known problems they had found in Java? You, you know Oracle doesn't like the fact that this has all been made public and that their dirty laundry is flapping in the breeze. Right. They would wish that were not the case. And I just, I hope that we don't, legally screw this down any tighter than we have now because we will all suffer much as we actually do arguably from the dmca yeah and uh, caliber uh, will convert it to uh from the moby format uh, with the drm to an unprotected epub but i think you have to use a special 
Yeah, and the format conversion is never really very good. Perfect. You know, it's, it does what it can, yeah. but yeah. Most people are just going to say, hey, I've got this. But I think it's important that they understand that they don't have it. <laughs> and if, they, if they're worried about this, uh, you may not care if you lose all your Honor Harrington novels. You've read them all. I love books. You love books, obviously. And yep. I love having books. Yep. Maybe, I don't know. It's, an, it's a really interesting issue. I love having ebooks. And um, there, at some point a while ago, I did dump all of my Kindles over to my system's hard drive um, as I'm legal, as I'm legally allowed to do. I mean, you just plug the Kindle in and there they are. Just drag and drop them and bang, now they're somewhere out of the Kindle safe. And at any point in the future, I can move them back into that Kindle. Or if something, some cataclysm occurs that prevents me from doing so, we know, we know the tools are available for, for, for removing the DRM under terms that we feel are ethical for us. And, you know, we're able to do that. I should also point out that there's some question about, uh, you know, if you have a library of records or books, you can give them to your heirs. And uh, apparently that's not legal if you have <laughs> iTunes music or uh, Kindle books. Yeah. So there's this whole issue. You know, if you really want to keep something and hand it down, buy the physical media, I guess. Pretty old-fashioned, though. Well, and technically, isn't loaning a book to a friend, isn't that a violation of the publisher's well, rights? Yeah, and they have this specific little feature that lets you do that in a very limited fashion. That's no, no, I mean a physical book. Oh, physical book? And, is it? I don't yeah. think so. Really? I can't just I give you the I've, physical copy? Uh, I think, sure I you can. know. You're Otherwise, libraries to... would be out of business. Of course you can. Of course you can. You think that's illegal? Good luck. Well, I mean, Good li luck. Library, remember, libraries have been in trouble before. They've had to fight for those rights. I do believe that you are allowed to give a book to somebody that you've read and let Must them be. read it. I do believe that is legal. Yeah, <laughs> I think I, you the, can't read mine. That would no. be <laughs> the chat room is saying that's first sale doctrine and, of course, uh, protected. But the problem is now in this digital world, you can't unless the company lets you. And there are very re restricted uh, means of doing that. It's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah, it's ridiculous. No, but the music industry has tried to kill. Remember, record resale yep. used records. They tried and failed, but they don't have to worry about it anymore. They got DRM. Or not. I don't know. Christopher Friday in San Diego is an unwitting joiner. Oh, dear. That sounds painful. I opened my documents folder and noticed something called join me. <laughs> join me in the lower left-hand section of the window. It's like eat me, drink me, where all the externally mounted drives are listed. I've not authorized any app downloads, no, nor knowingly accepted any meeting software. The most recent thing I can remember doing is going to YouTube and creating a personal Google account so I can look at YouTube videos. I'm very concerned that my computer is now compromised with software designed to let others see what's on my screen. I never knowingly accepted or used Join Me. Has anyone ever heard of Join Me being loaded maliciously on a target computer via social networking in order to gain access to personal information? Thank you, Christopher Friday. Does this so ring a bell? Yeah. Join Me is a is a is like a very lightweight screen sharing app from the log me in people ah. and it's join dot me so they use the dot me top level domain so it's j-o-i-n dot me you can go there and and get a token essentially 
then then email that or tell it over the phone to a friend who go, goes there, puts their token in, and they're able to view your screen. So the good news is it's not malicious. It uh, Christopher somehow, you know, who knows? Maybe he was installing something and, and it was one of those, oh, uncheck this box if you don't want join me added to your system, you know, which it just annoys me that Java still has that checked for, you know, loading all of the Google toolbars or whatever it is they're they're promoting. But I would imagine you can go to add remove programs and un and and cleanly remove the the join me agent from your machine, Christopher. So that's what that's about, and uh, you can get rid of it. I wonder, it could even be, I suppose, a, a bookmark you might have dragged to the uh, desktop or something like that. Yeah. Might might not even be anything to worry about. Glenn Hyatt in Philadelphia, PA, wonders about ECC keys. How many numbers? Steve, thank you for your rundown on elliptic curve cryptography. Fascinating, useful. Seems to me the keys must involve more numbers than you described. The public key is a point on a curve in two dimensions, right? That would be a pair of numbers, X, Y. Does the NIST standard offer a convention whereby the public key is a single binary string that is broken into a pair of coordinates? The private key, well, that's the number of times to add the point of origin to itself, as I understood from your explanation. But isn't the point of origin also a secret? Is that part of the private key in some way? I'm glad he's asking these questions. I don't even understand the question. Thank you for your laudable work teaching all of us about security over the years, Glenn Hyatt. Huh? Well, okay, so mm-hmm. I try. I I, sim- I deliberately simplified this so that we had sort of a visual, conceptual. Okay, I kind of know how this thing works. Approach. Um, the math gets immediately deep and envoy. It, it involves things known to number theorists as Galois fields or finite fields of of prime number size raised to an integer number. And it I mean it just goes crazy. Um, but so so I d I don't I didn't want to go any further and I have not looked into it at the level required to implement ECC myself because I haven't needed to implement ECC myself. There's lots of open source software. Uh, Anybody who is really curious, just, you know, Google elliptic curve cryptography and there, there are more resources available, but I I figured, okay, I've, I achieved the goal of sort of giving people a a, a taste for it, uh, which is really all I was trying to do rather than, you know, Thank you. nail it down to, okay, let's go write one during the half-hour podcast. Bless you, Steve. Or hour-and-a-half podcast. Bless you, bless you, bless you. <laughs> Terry Richard, Toronto, Ontario, Canada, writes about Windows 8. Mayday, mayday, mayday. Warning, Will Robinson. I've been a Security Now listener since episode one. Great stuff like you. I want to stick with Windows XP until the wheels fall off. Uh, maybe they have XP no longer supported. I have a computer running Windows XP that's running fine, and I really don't need a new machine at this point in time. But I read in yesterday's news an article about Windows 8 and the reader's comments that went along with it. The general consensus seems to be this new OS is a disaster. The recommendation is get a Windows 7 machine while you still can. (laughs) Some say they'll wait for Windows 9, but who knows what this will look like, even though... (laughs) Actually, I don't even know if there'll be a Windows 9 myself, but... 
Uh. That's a conversation for Paul and Mary Jo. Um, even though I don't need a new machine now, is it a good idea to get a new one anyway on the chance that the, uh, you know, the probable Windows OSs in future will be unsuitable for desktop work? I ordered two new computers, but I can cancel if you should uh, def, def, def say something else. I also have a comment, as per your suggestion, I read last year the excellent book Zero Day. Reread it this past week. The situation described in the book, unfathomable to me. That much of our infrastructure is, 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 is connected to the web? That, that's incomprehensible. I have some files which I would not wish anyone to tamper with. I, I store them on a computer never connected to the net, never has been. If I could take such precautions, why is it that infrastructure computers are connected to the Internet? For the sake of convenience? As an example, nuclear power stations have been around since the 60s, and they weren't connected to the Internet then. They worked. Why connect them now? Well, because they need to download our podcast. Thank you for the Security Now podcast. The knowledge I've gained from them has in all probability protected my computers from Internet risks. Regards, Terry Richard. Okay, so clearly I feel more strongly about Windows 8 being a steaming pile of we know what I've described Windows as <laughs> during an early episode of this podcast. But, but is that due to security issues or just the, the, the user interface? Oh, I just, I, yeah. You yeah. don't like the user yeah. interface, but we don't know yet if it's less well, secure, do we? I, I don't like upgrading for you don't the like new. Yeah, uh, exactly. I don't like new. New. We know what new is from a security standpoint. It's always bad, uh, just by by definition. Um, I have to say though that I have softened my position on Windows Seven dramatically. I have been using it a lot recently. Not myself. I'm still happily on Windows XP, which has 530 days remaining of of support. That is service pack. Three Windows XP Service Pack 3, 530 days remaining. So that's still good for another year and a half. Um, but I will definitely move to 7, not Vista and not 8. So, Terry, I really think what people are suggesting is wise. Um, it, I think 7 is the next place to land. And with any luck, 7 will take me into retirement. So... <laughs> I, I do not want to move to Metro and what they have done to Windows 8. I was just like, oh, my God. So, yeah. I think you know, it's interesting is that the reviews are starting to come in for the Windows RT tablet. And while I did expect kind of a howl of pain from real users, the reviewers have been very positive. Ah. Now, that's not Windows oh, 8. That's the Windows 8 tablets. Right, RT. which is a, arm an ARM-based yeah. device. Right. Uh, and just his second point about why things are being connected Unfortunately, it's sad. It's because they can, and as you said, Leo. It's, although it may not, it may not be to download this podcast. Well, they got to get a eBay because, and. Uh, oh, uh, it's, well. Oh, and look, we can manage remotely. What if the alarm goes terrible off? Terrible idea. And I'm in bed. Terrible oh, idea. Wanna, oh God! Do not manage nuclear plants remotely, please. Yeah. Yeah. If you not, if you don't want to be on site, then don't do the plant at all. <laughs> Just don't. If you don't feel safe enough to sit next to the core, don't build it in the first place. Yeah. So the answer is pure convenience, convenience. and absolute yeah. sheer stupidity. No requirement. No. no. My God. Jim Schimpf and Derry, PA, 
is our is that our last question? Did I actually yeah. get through all? Yeah. Is uh, wondering about crypto in NFC. We did a great episode. If you're interested in NFC and how it works, uh, go back a couple episodes. He says it was a great show too. Uh, just listen to it. Shows how far behind I am. Well, that's not that far. That was just a few yeah. weeks. Yeah. Your explanation very clear showed me that uh, it's sort of RFID on steroids. Yep. As you mentioned, encryption is part of the standard, but not used much yet. So how prone is the system to interception? 13 megahertz is a pretty clear frequency, at least in the daytime. Would an extremely sensitive shortwave receiver pick this up at, let's say, 10 meters? The modulation, 10 meters away, not 10 meter frequency. The modulation is above the audio, but it's easy to imagine a hacked receiver could demodulate the signal. Thanks again for making my commute a complete pleasure, Jim. First of all, I think it's 315 megahertz, okay. I, if memory serves, or 335 or something. I don't think it was 13 megahertz. That seems way low. Um, but, but yes, um, where we need to go, and I hope we go there soon, is to implement crypto in NFC. We, we absolutely have the technology with public key crypto enabled by elliptic curve crypto, ECC, to, to perform communications between devices where they are strongly authenticated and absolutely protected against eavesdropping because that's exactly, for example, what we have with SSL. When SSL is working, the whole point is man-in-the-middle attacks cannot work. Eavesdropping attacks cannot work. It is entirely possible for two endpoints, an NFC enabled card, a smart card of some sort, and the reader to freely talk back and forth if they've got public key crypto. That's the key. You have to have that. And then it doesn't matter if you broadcast what you're doing or if somebody receives it. The It is in the spec. There's, as I have alluded to a couple of weeks ago, I've got some things that I, I don't. I have some information about things that will be happening that are exciting in the near future uh, that we'll be talking about uh, when I'm able to um, that are going to solve these problems in a cool way. Oh, aren't you a sneaky, <laughs> sneaky cove? <laughs> a sly cove, you. <laughs> Steve Gibson is uh, slyly hanging out at GRC.com, the Gibson Research Corporation, but he's not doing so anonymously. Oh, no. You can go there and ask questions. Go to grc.com slash feedback, and in a couple episodes, we'll answer some questions. You can uh, follow him on Twitter, at SGGRC. You can uh, go there and get SpinRight. That would be a good idea. The world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. you got to have it. You've got a hard drive. Uh, but there's lots of free stuff there, security apps and password information, dietary information, too. Don't forget, we're going to do a special Up the Sugar Hill, Down the Sugar Hill, Part 3. Over the sugar hill, around the sugar hill, <laughs> through the sugar hill, to grandmother's house we go. An update on uh, carb-free living with Mr. Gibson, uh, Sunday, 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, uh, on twit.tv. And we'll make a special out of that so you can yep. read the first, listen to the first two in preparation and then listen to the third after that. Uh, 
And for everybody who has sent me uh, their stories, thank you very much. For those who want to and haven't yet, you can just go to the health page under research at from the GRC main menu, and there is a feedback page. By all means, send me stuff. I'm reading them all, and um, boy, Leo, I just I'll tell you, it's it's really been gratifying to to see how many people have you know the. The way the information was presented clicked for them. They understood the science and the why. And wow, results have just been phenomenal. We'll We'll be talking about it on Sunday. Fabulous. Can't wait for that. And then, of course, we'll be back here on Wednesday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, 1800 UTC, for the next edition of Security Now. The Halloween edition. Oh, are you going to kind of come in in costume? (laughs) Uh, Okay. (laughs) I I have a costume I'll wear for that show. I just thought of it. Cool. Perfect, the perfect outfit for that show. Um, you can always watch uh, live. We like it if you do, but after the fact, two on-demand versions available in a couple of versions. Now, Steve on his site, grc.com, has 16 kilobit audio, which is tiny, and the even smaller uh, plain text version. He does transcripts, uh, human written transcripts, so they're intelligible and spelled correctly and that kind of thing. That's at grc.com. You can come to twit.tv for the higher bandwidth audio and even video if you want to see Steve's smiling face. Although I don't know why anybody download the video. People do, though. Like tw- like one in five download video of this show. Wow. Cool. They like to look at you. Ah, there's not much to see here. <laughs> it is the kind of show you could just listen to and get pretty much yeah. 99.999% of it. Yeah, and I do. I'm very conscious of the fact that most of our listeners are listeners. And so it's, you know, no, thank goodness, too, because, boy, if I just provide graphics to go along with all this, I just never get anything. I else would done. love it. You know, we'd have, we'd have to have our full time <laughs> illustrator, but I, that would be great if we did. But yeah. next time. By the yeah. way, I've just been corrected. The UTC time is wrong because we end our summertime here in the United States <gasps> on Sunday. So. Yeah. Yay! So I'm gonna instead of adding seven, I'm gonna add eight, and it'll be uh, nineteen hundred UTC. I hope I did that right. Is that right? Nineteen hundred UTC. So we're springing forward and falling back. So we set our clocks back. We fall oh, back. We get an extra hour, right? We fall get an back. extra get an hour. Extra hour. Um, but of course, UTC never changes because it's enlightened. Uh, uh, it's always the people. same. UTC and Arizona. <laughs> they don't change either. U.S. is November 4th. So, no. Okay. See, that's what I thought. Oh. oh that's what I thought. Week. So, now okay. I'm confused. So, it is. I was right. It's 1800. <laughs> we'll figure it out by next week because it's November 4th. That's right, Keith. Thank you. Okay. It's, and that even further confused it because they changed the date. And now I'm really – in fact, still, still some software does it wrong. I know. Hey. I'm really on. I don't understand. That. And the clocks we have on our bathroom mirrors, Leo. No. They, they know. GMT does not change, but British Standard Time does change. And Universal Coordinated Time never changes. No. Although it does die in 2038. That's going to be a problem. Yes, because it's on Unix. 32 bits. (laughs) Yes, baby. I hope I'm alive to see that. (laughs) And then we'll be able to say, I remember Y2K. Okay, you have another podcast to do. I huh? better go do it. I'm, I'm. I think so. I'm just uh, thinking, and that's always talk a to you. Talk to you next. Thank week, you, Steve. Man. We'll see you next time on Security Bye. Now. Security.